This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. I'm James Ramsey. And I'm Rachel Neal. All festival long, WNYC is bringing you exclusive coverage of the panels and talks featuring some of the biggest names in film today. Each day, we'll hear the latest conversations from Tribeca with people like Spike Lee, Courtney Love, and Nate Silver. On this episode, we'll hear about the art of documentary film with director Liz Garbus, who made the movie Bobby Fischer Against the World. You've said it's your title the Russians are holding. You don't like the Russians. The Russians have cheated at chess. They've tried every way to avoid me, to avoid giving me a chance for a match. And they've slandered my name. And, uh, you know, they're just just dead afraid of me. They have been for years. Rachel, I have a confession to make. Mm Mm-hmm. I've been confused for years because I thought Bobby Fischer was that adorable kid from New York City who played people in the park. Are you thinking of the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer? (laughs) Yes, I am. That's fine. That's why we have documentaries, so we can all just learn this stuff. The real Bobby Fischer was not only a great chess player, but as you heard in that clip, he's a major figure in Cold War politics. On this panel, we'll hear from Garbus and other leading documentary filmmakers about the innovative ways they're telling true stories. I'd like to introduce our moderator, Eric Hines, Liz Garbus, Rachel Boynton, and Roger Ross Williams. Um, so I'm going to quickly just go down the line and introduce everybody, and then we'll sort of get into it. I want to maximize the time here to actually talk. Um, down at the end here, we have Liz Garbus, who's uh, directed uh, Bobby Fischer Against the World and the upcoming What Happened, Miss Simone. Um, and then we have Roger Ross Williams, who's an Oscar winner for Music by Prudence and God Loves Uganda. And then uh, we have Rachel Boynton, who uh, made our, ba- our brand as Crisis and just last year had a film called Big Men. And I think we're going to start with you, Roger, if that's all right. Okay. Because <laughs> um, I, uh, I think that so we have sort of free reign to kind of go where we want to go today and, and to discuss. And I think we should all ask questions of each other the, the, as, as much as possible. And there's a Q&A session at the end, but at the same time, if there's something that feels like you really want to jump in there, just get my attention and, and, and we'll see where we go. Um, but I think the sort of um, the, the arc that's always interesting to me in terms of uniting what a film becomes and, and where it started is there's a sense of you all sort of encounter the possibility of, of a story that's somewhere down the line. And there's sort of the story of making the film, which kind of at some point dovetails with what the film becomes because you encounter people and you encounter their stories and then you shape that to some degree or you're shaped by it. Um, And Roger, I'd love to hear just a little bit about where you came upon your story and then talk a little bit about how that developed over time with you and became what we see in the film. With God Loves Uganda. With God Loves Uganda, if you don't mind. So um, I'd been just reading in the press about the anti-homosexuality law in Uganda, which is a death sentence for um, gays and lesbians. And I heard a little bit that there was, you know, a lot of American evangelicals sort of involved, um, but not till I got to Uganda, actually, and um, met, the first person I met was uh, David Cato, who's an activist who was, um, ended up being murdered. And um, he said to me, he was the first, he came to my hotel, and he said, the story that hasn't been told is the story of the damage American evangelicals are doing in the country. I kind of went there thinking I was going to tell a story of just sort of, you know, LGBT activists in Uganda, in Africa, because I know it's, you know, it's just like huge sort of, you know, struggle for them. And, um, and I ended up sort of getting swept into the evangelical world. And the, and, and the evangelicals that I ended up meeting, and actually when I met them, there was this, I was 
of course, being a gay man, I was totally um, freaked out and angry, and I, I thought it was going to be this really damning thing. And over the course of two years, that changed. Mm -hmm. I actually, um, we actually grew to, to like and respect each other uh, through the filmmaking process. And in the end, one of my main characters who actually, when I started, she said she, she believes all homosexuals should be put in prison. And at the end, I said, Joanna, do you want to see me in prison? And she's like, no, I love you, Roger. And we, those sort of walls came down. And the film became much, it became a much different film. It wasn't this sort of, you know, this sort of you know, angry, sort of hateful film. It was a film where, where we were learning, to, we learned to understand each other. And I understood their motivations and who they were. And they're really, they actually were actually good people who weren't really aware of, you know, what they were doing. Well, it's one of the things I think is just remarkable about the film is how incredibly fair it is to people that you might be disgusted by or I might have a hard time with, but they, are, they become human before our eyes. How do you think that helped the storytelling of it? Because in, in a sense, you could, you could argue that, well, that maybe weakens the story because it's not as clear. No, I think it actually strengthens her because it was, it was totally unexpected. You want to be really angry and you want to really, really hate them. And, and it was because it was a growing process for me. So as I grew, so did the story. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, that's what's surprising about it. And I think that through the, through the process, I actually, I mean, I learned so much, but I came out of it. Um, and I thought I could never show this film to the evangelical community. And I can't, ended up it being embraced by the evangelical community and screened at a 1,000 churches across the country. And I was invited to really conservative uh, seminary schools. And it was just amazing dialogue that came out of it. And is there anything about that outcome that makes you feel like, what, did I go too far in some way? Did I not address what I came here to address? No. Actually, um, I think that what I came out with of it was that I think that dialogue, it, that the dialogue was the most important part of the mm -hmm. film, that, it was, that that's why I actually made the film, and that's what, what this, you know, that mm -hmm. whole journey was about. So actually, no. With that, I think we're going to throw to a clip from God Loves You. I think it's actually a, the trailer. So, so they have another little idea of what we're, what we're actually talking okay. about. So, well, if you haven't seen God Loves You, Gandhi, God knows you're going to want to see it now. Um, it's, and it's, it's on Netflix and various other yes, platforms Netflix, now. Netflix, iTunes, all the usual places. What's the biggest surprise for you in terms of what you conceived as being the possible story here and the story that it became? Um, that I actually, that the film, well, I think what, 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 hap what came out of the film was what surprised me that there was, there was a, a couple of politicians, the vice president of Uganda, who had called me to a meeting and said he changed his, his views on homosexuality after watching the film, that wow. he was moved and his eyes were open. And I think that was really um, surprising, because I didn't think I would, you know. And also, even some characters in the film that changed their, their views and said, we need to re-examine the way we, we sort of do business in Africa, because it, it's a business. Religion is a business in right. Africa. It's big business, and, that's, and that's, it's about money. And it's about power and control. Mm -hmm. Lou Engels, the, the, the gentleman with the mustache in the, that we just saw, um, he, he's a fascinating character. <laughs> and it sort of got me thinking about the complicated characters in documentary film. And the sort of, I think that's something that you, you're working with a lot of footage, and you're choosing some footage to represent those characters. And it's a t difficult dance to 
give them a fair shake and allow their complications to show without going too far in any direction. Is that difficult with him in particular? Lou was so difficult because he is one of the biggest evangelical leaders in the country. He's an advisor to a lot of presidential candidates. He was in, um, he threw Rick Perry's big prayer rally when he was running for president. He was an advisor to George W. Bush, to um, Newt Gingrich, and he has, holds a lot of political power. His college roommate, Mike Pence, just passed the freedom, the whatever, religious freedom law in, um, in Indiana. And so, in Indiana. So, Lou has, is very powerful, and he did not he did not want to talk to the non-religious, you know, anyone who was, unless, unless you were making a film and, and you, were, you were sort of part of the religious sort of filmmaking community. But he didn't want to talk to us. And it took me a year and a half to convince him to do it. And uh, I, he backed out time and time again. And I said, you know, if this is your conviction, if this is what you believe in, you really, you need to st stand up. He throws these massive prayer rallies for 33,000 people praying to end homosexuality, the threat of Islam, and abortion. Um, he was in Jesus' camp. Uh, he is a sort of a towering figure. And um, when he sat, when he finally sat down, we were both so tense and, and nervous. Um, and, um, you know, he actually, you know, when you're sort of talking with him one-on-one, -on -one, he's this actually, you know, he's a preacher. He's a, he's a personable guy. Um, and uh, there's a, there were so many contradictions in stuff that he was saying. It, uh, it, was, it was my instinct. I wanted to demonize him, but I, also, but I also wanted him to be sort of people to understand sort of like who he was and where he was coming from. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that was a bit of a process for yeah, me and for the film. And he's such great charisma, too, that's sort of undeniable. He's incredibly charismatic, like really charismatic. So it's like when he's like turning the charm on you, you're like, you know, I could see why he has all those like tens of thousands of, of young people. And they're young people. It's a youth movement. But he's a, he's a very dangerous man because he calls for sort of like this sort of, he's like we're in a, like a blood war. Um, he believes he, the, the army of God he's associated with who killed the abortion doctor in um, Kansas. And, they, and he's, he believes that we, it's a battle. It's a spiritual battle happening in the world. And you must battle sin and evil. And you must, it's, like, it's a war. And that's pretty frightening stuff. So I always thought of the film as sort of like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That was, <laughs> that it was a horror film. Yeah, yeah. Well, with that, I'm going to briefly then sort of move on to, to, to Rachel, if that's okay. And, Invasion uh, of the body snatchers, yeah. Rachel. <laughs> well, there's a sort of another different ideology at play in Big Men. And, and I think the sort of character of, of Jim Musselman is, is, is interesting to bring up in this respect because he's a larger-than-life character mm -hmm. and holds the screen incredibly well. Oh, I'm fascinated by him. Um, and yet, you, you know, you, you allow the full complexity of, of him and sort of of what he's doing in terms of oil prospecting in Africa comes come through. And did you have a similar sort of struggle to sort of shape him in, in, in a way that didn't let it spill too far in either, either direction? The biggest struggle for us in the cutting room, I always knew, was that the film is a, most of you have probably not seen this movie, it's a movie about, it's actually about capitalism, but that makes it sound really boring. It's not boring. It's, um, it's the central story is about, um, uh, this guy Jim Musselman and this company that he starts called Cosmos Energy and how they discover oil, first oil in Ghana and develop the country's first oil field. And I got permission from the company and from the government to follow that process from inside the process. It is interwoven with filming that I did in the 
all over Nigeria, really, but principally in the Niger Delta, at, concurrently, at the same time that the story in Ghana was going on. Um, and so this sort of, at the time, there was this militancy in the south of Nigeria. Now it's in the north, if you follow Nigeria. But at the time, it was in the south, and people were demanding more, local people who had oil in their region were demanding more money from the oil for themselves. It was a lot more complicated than that. That's really a simplification, but fine. So it's, it's and, and there was actually a third story that I shot that isn't in the movie that was about the US Navy. I filmed the US Navy in both Ghana and Nigeria. And that's a different story. So um, the, I always knew that the hardest part of the film was going to be interweaving those two stories in a way that made them meaningful. So the most difficult thing for me wasn't character, although, of course, that's complicated and takes a lot of time and effort. But I see right. things in a very complicated light. Mm -hmm. So I don't have trouble making them complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I have trouble making them simple. Right. And, and that, I think, is my struggle as a filmmaker, mm -hmm. is um, because I have a tendency to see things in a very complicated way, mm -hmm. and movies want to be simple, yeah. um, to take the things that I see and to make them simple in a way that allows the complexity to remain and to... Yeah, I was trying to make a film that worked on a lot of different levels simultaneously. Is, is there something, in, it's the impossible question in response to that, but yeah. how exactly do you approach doing that? Is there, is there something oh, that guides you? Uh, no, <laughs> the edit took forever. It took forever, and um, I had a horrible process uh, with an editor that just resulted in nothing, but that was, it was my fault because I was pregnant at the time. And you laugh, anyone else been through this? And, and um, I didn't know. I just didn't know. Um, I didn't know what it was going to mean to have a baby. I, I've always been very intrepid and unafraid and like, oh, I'm going to have a baby, no big deal. Um, yeah. So uh, it sort of threw me for a loop. And yeah. the process, I, I think it was a very helpful, if this is like a hands-on filmmaker thing, one thing that I've learned over the years is that as a director, I really needed to understand my own process. And it took me a long time to have confidence in my process as a director in the cutting room. Uh -huh. Because I'm not like a lot of directors. Um, a lot of directors are very comfortable with getting transcripts made and watching stuff with the editor and then walking away and letting the editor kind of form a, a film and then coming in and giving notes and working in that way. It's just not me. It's just not who I am. Like I'm an extremely hands-on. I memorize everything. Mm. I do all my translations myself because I was an associate producer first. So I'm super, super detail-oriented. Mm -hmm. And I just like the only way I know how to do it is to memorize everything. And and I have to be very. I I tried to do a process where I was basically not in the cutting room except to give notes, and it didn't work That's at all. Idea. So I learned a lot through the process. Before we go further, let's watch yeah. the. It's a remarkable film, so I really recommend everybody seeing it. I think, I think what's particularly remarkable about it is how, like Roger, you're incredibly fair-minded about everything. And I, and I also feel like there's, and also like Roger's film, there's not a sense of being condescended to at any moment. And so the complexity that you're looking to convey, I think, comes through. But obviously, in a, in a riveting, entertaining way, too. But based on what you were just telling us before about your process, is, is it just that things just have to be, you have to kind of be the driving force throughout everything, and that it's, it's just going to take some time for you to work through it all? Is that? I think it depends on the film. Yeah. Different films require different efforts. You know, some films don't require that. Mm -hmm. 
this film, I designed this film to be difficult. Mm -hmm. Like when I started the process, mm -hmm. I didn't have kids, I'd just gotten married, and like the big thing, it was actually a very personal mountain that I sort of constructed for myself. Mm -hmm. I, I was at this point in my life where I'd made one film and it had done pretty well and I felt really confident and I was like, I, what's the hardest thing I could possibly do? Like, that was, that was how I went question. about it. Wow. And so <laughs> I was. I was like, what could I do that would be really hard? I can do better. Like, I, I felt like I wanted to prove something kind of to myself. And at the time, there were, oil was like all over the news and I was seeing a lot of stuff about oil and all these scare things about oil were running out of oil. But I wasn't seeing anything from inside the business. And I thought, I could get access to the oil business. I could do that. And ooh, I want to do it in Africa. Ooh, look at this. You know, West Africa is this hotbed of excitement for the oil industry. How interesting. Ooh, there's a revolution happening in Nigeria. That would be great. Mm -hmm. So originally, I, I got on a plane. I didn't know anybody. I had a few phone numbers in my pocket. And I, I started thinking about the movie. It's not the best way to go about making a film. <laughs> I don't recommend it. I really don't. But it was a great process, and it took a really long time, and I it changed me, and I'm very proud of the film. But it's not like something that I would say, "Hey guys, go out and make a movie this way." <laughs> yeah. And for you then going forward, does it feel like you don't have an, does it need to be a mountain that you? No, need to climb? I did that. I, I like. Yeah. I'm really proud of Big Men. I'm glad it exists. I the next process is not going to be like that at all. Mm -hmm. um, no. It can't be because I'm different. And, sorry, and my life is different. There's, I have right. two. I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. I'm not going to be making that movie anymore, right. and that's okay. But I feel like one thing I have discovered for me in terms of my process is that I have a lot of ideas, right? And my husband has a lot of ideas. He's constantly clipping articles and leaving them on my pillow, and they're great ideas, right? But the, so many ideas just don't stick. You look at them, you make some phone calls, you send some emails, and they just don't stick. And for me, for an idea to stick, I have to feel, unfortunately, I wish I weren't like this. I keep struggling against it. But I have to feel like I'm working on something that's actually fundamental to the time I'm living in. It's like a huge, it's basically the only thing that will get me up in the morning and get me to make the phone calls and write the emails. Unless I'm getting paid, right? <laughs> and doing something for hire is a very different sure. beast. And that's actually incredibly freeing and fantastic when you have money and you can just you know, make a film and you don't have to feel that way. But if it's all self-generated and you're going out and you're raising the money and you're pushing the boulder up the mountain, the only way I have been able to do that is to feel like I'm working on something that's actually really important in our time, that's kind of emblematic um, culturally. I guess I'm a bit of an anthropologist, sort of. Like, that's somehow like a, a, po a poetic snapshot of the moment in which we live. Well, it's... It, there's a complication, or the word complication keeps coming up, and I think regardless of what project you might be working on, it seems like what would be a thread throughout is that you, we put you in a room with people, yeah. you're going you're gonna to dig in a bit. And I think we get that sense from Big Men, which I think is amazing, is that there's, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a pull quote on there that talks about access, and access sometimes translates in, into, into filmmaking as in, isn't it amazing that we're in the room with these people? Guys, yeah. this is amazing what you're watching. You never get that sense of that with Big Man. It's like mm -hmm. you're in the room, and so it's an opportunity to dig in. And I would imagine that's probably pretty consistent in terms of what you're bringing to it. What do you mean? <laughs> like we're in the room with these gentlemen as they're deciding billion-dollar deals, and instead of it being like, guys, we're watching it, you're like, hey, what does this mean? Talk to us about this. Yeah. Let's, tell us about this issue. Tell us about this deal. And the same, the same thing in, in Ghana. Yeah, I'm very... Um 
I, I like people, uh, although I'm not like a totally a people person, but I, I respect people. I respect all different kinds of people, and I like getting to know them, and I don't, my impulse when I'm filming something is, are we getting the shots we need? Do we have the right cutaways? Do I have my exteriors? Have we, are we in the right position? Am I watching the cameraman, getting the pans? Like, are we, are we covered? Listening, you have to listen. Like, it, the meaning of it. Like, are we covered for the meaning of what I think is happening in the room as it relates to everything else that I have? Do we have, was he on that or she on that guy when he was talking about this? Because I know that's going to be important because we didn't get it in that scene last week and, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So that's really more of my thought process right. in the room. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot to, it's always a lot to, yeah, it's fun. to manage. It's fun. This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Coming up after the break, more from CNN's panel, Capture Reality. So, Liz, let's talk about what happened to uh, Miss Simone, um, which is a very, very different process than what we're talking about with, with these other two filmmakers in the sense of it being an archival work. Um, but some of the same things are in play um, in terms of character and story. And I think that when you're dealing with a sort of a very famous um, archival, a famous figure like Nina Simone, um, you know, there's a question of what... Our what we expect to find out about her, what we expect to see narrated for us, and what we don't expect to find. And I imagine that our story of that is different from yours in the sense yeah. of, you know, you're encountering things behind the scenes that, that we don't know about, and how is that going to make its way onto the film? Yeah, I mean, I've made um, both archival and verite films, and actually it's a very similar process, I think. Um, mm. It's sort of a journey that you go on towards a truth that um, that you discover in the process of making the film and listening to people and dealing with contradictions in the edit room. Hmm. Um, and I think one of the things Rachel was talking about and I think that you know Roger's film embodies is embracing those contradictions for what they teach us about the human being and the human spirit and our kind of myriad capabilities of, of as a human being towards goodness, towards badness, towards evil, towards pure artistry and beauty. Um, and I think, um, for me, you know, my films have ranged from, you know, the farm in which I was in prison and to Bobby Fischer, who is a chess player, to Nina Simone, who's a, um, you know, an icon of, of soul. And, um, but all of them actually touch on very similar themes, which is the expansiveness of human behavior and human possibility for both beauty and darkness. All of those mm -hmm. are, are actually in all of those films. Um, and um, some other films I've made too, and I and I, I actually think for, for these my panelists as well. And maybe that's what documentaries are. Maybe it's just not you know right. these three panelists. Maybe that's what we explore as as filmmakers are is that range of, of um, human experience and um, so, and you know it's a dull documentary that has a character who's just one way, sure. right? Sure. Um, you know, and so I think that you know for Nina Simone, you know there are the, there are people who yeah. idolize her and. Um, you know, you need to protect this legacy of, of art that we just enjoy. You know, don't mess with our, like, experience of that music. And then there are people who just, like, won't even talk to me because their feelings about her are so negative um, because she was so difficult with them personally. And Bobby Fischer was very much the same, actually, that genius, but also that, that, that difficulty interpersonally. And how do you kind of explore the art and appreciate the genius at the same time as kind of getting to who that, that 
that person was. And, um, and the journey, like I said, it's, it's not that different from verite filmmaking, because for me it was about digging deep into the archival until I felt like I had found every scrap of Nina that existed on this planet without like excavating her grave. I mean, it was like, you know, literally, I'm going to find every radio interview she's done since 1959 when she got famous. I'm going to look at, you know, she had three or four failed attempts at writing an autobiography. I'm going to find those tapes from all the different people whose houses she was staying at when she was doing that. And it was like, for me, it was just this like obsessive compulsive gathering, <laughs> hoarding of Nina and, and, then, and then listening to her, you know, mm -hmm. and then hearing her. And I think that um, Nina as an icon has been appropriated and misappropriated. And for me, it was just trying to get to her as much as, as possible, which doesn't mean I'm not a, an interpreting force and I'm not imposing my own subjectivity on her, but um, still in all, I wanted to, to bring all of that out. Um, and that's very similar in a certain way to verite filmmaking when you're there as a listener, as a conduit, like to be in every room and to cover every shot. You know, it's a similar yeah. kind of way in which you're, um, you're uh, channeling this experience to your audience <laughs> by gathering, 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 funneling, and then, you know, putting back out. Um, and, and so getting uh, into the archival is, com is comparable to gathering verite spending four years in a prison, I yeah. think. I mean, I think, or, you know, being, being, you know, having the journeys that these guys are having. I think, I think. Because it's a journey of, of, like, listening and diving and dealing with contradiction and liking people and having them not like you or like, you know, and, and you become this kind of figure that people have to accept or not accept when you're telling your story. Right. Um, and, you know, this is a master class, so I imagine people are here because they're making films and they're interested in things that work and things that don't work. And I think one of the biggest challenges that we have when we go out as filmmakers is, you know, will you talk to me? And it's often like people's judgments of you and whether you're the suited person for that to be telling the story that they hold so dear. You know, it's either their life or their person that they loved or their person that they hated or whatever their thing is. It's like, well, how do you convince yourself to be the person to trust if you're not there? You know, sometimes you have a child making a film about a parent. You know, then mm -hmm. that's one thing. But if you're an out, you know, if you're an outsider like we were in our stories, um, so how do you do that? Um, I can't tell you how many times I said on this Nina Simone film, I'm like I'm Switzerland. Like I don't come in with you know Nina is this or Nina is that because they break down to camps. It was the same way with Bobby Fischer. It's the same way when you're dealing with politics in prison and what your politics are about incarceration. You know, like there there are people who sit on the parole board who think one thing, and there are inmates and lawyers who think another thing. And it's like, who are you? And what do you represent? Why should I talk to you? And that's sort of like challenge number one in making a film is letting yourself be the person that people talk to um, in the field and doing the listening and allowing yourself to like listen to their humanity where you might not find it, like even if you don't agree with them at all. And so that's kind of challenge number one. And then I think challenge number two is what you get. Well, there's a lot of challenges. I'm just going to talk about a couple. But and then when you gather that material and you're in the edit room is embracing that contradiction and not trying to, you know, we all want like our A, B, C, and A, you know, we want our narrative arc and we want our structures, but it's like to find them with their different layers where you're like peeling back that onion and like maybe finding some pomegranate seeds inside. Like it's like you do have to kind of do that and, it, and you want that arc, you want to entertain and bring people on a, on a jury. Storytelling is as old as our culture and we want to tell a great story that has a satisfying ending, but that doesn't mean it, has, it shouldn't be complex um, and surprise you. Um, and so I think it's being open to that and not being frightened of that. I think in any good film you make, there's always a time in the edit room where you're like, this is never going to work. This is never. And the darkness. But, but that can be really f scary when you're a first-time filmmaker. I mean, for me, I, I remember when, I was, when we were making The Farm, I was just like, there's just no way 
There's no way we're gonna we're gonna interweave these six stories. Like it's just never gonna it's gonna feel, and and that's really depressing. I mean, it can be very emotional and really depressing. And having gone through that, you know, the next time that oh, that's a good sign. <laughs> that means it's as complicated as it should be. Yeah. And when it's not that way, then it's something different. You know, then it's a different. It could still be like a great TV show or something else, but it's not that thing that we're talking about. And I think so. When you're in that. If in the class part of this whole thing, if you're, when you're in that darkness, like that's a good thing, you know. Um, I think um, you have to like, I don't know. I suppose there's like a Buddhist principle, like you observe that bad time and know that will pass, and like you know, be there for that and and let that happen for your film and for yourself. Are you at the point now that you know that that's going to pass? Do you, are you... I'm at the point now when that happens. I'm like, you know, because you have plans when you get into the edit room and. You know, I'm I'm always in the edit room. I mean, that you have plans, um, and they don't work, and like, and that's and that's all good. You know, when people say to me things like, "Oh, well, you know, is there a script?" and it's like I'm looking at them like, "What?" You know, and I know that that's like, and then I decide to get like on my high horse about like how these films are. If you have a script, you're like completely missing the thing, but it's true. Like, it's just there is just a time where it just all doesn't seem like it's going to come together or it's going to suck or something. And, and that, yeah, I am almost like, okay, I'm at that time, you know, and that that's okay. And so that's, I think, like something to pass on. And I also think that sometimes because people, you know, will come, you know, I, I like I've mentored younger female filmmakers through Sundance and, you know, there's also times when a film isn't worth making. Like where you're, or maybe it's a short film. It's not a narrative feature. I've looked at people's things where I just, I really wonder, is there 90 minutes? Like not everything should be a 90-minute film. And to really examine, and if you're not sure that you've got the goods or if you're still pushing for like how you're going to, you know, maybe that's not the right f film for you. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm very, criti I'm very like uh, critical about what films I, you know, about my own work that way of just like, does it does it want to be this, or maybe it wants to be a short, or maybe it wants to be so? You know, what is the best form for this? And oftentimes, just because it's an awesome idea or, or politically relevant, or you have a great character, doesn't mean it's going to work as a, as a film. Um, how much were each of you editing as you were going, or how much was it about collecting before really starting the editing process? For me, for for all of you, I guess. So, yeah. how much is it about collecting before editing? Yeah, or were you editing as you were going? Well, for, with Nina, I was like, we we start, you know, editing and going through material was happening before I shot any interviews. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were, I was, I was really wanted the film to come from the archival mm -hmm. and from her audio tapes and talking. So, so it was that, taking shape as well. That. Right, like I didn't do interviews before. I didn't shoot anything until I had gone through. All like I was, I was looking at archive, okay. looking at Nina. Yeah. yeah. Before it. And for, for the two, that was it. But it's different. That's very different for a very different. Yeah. 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 That was like Rachel. I actually just got on a plane yeah. and went both times. I went to first to Zimbabwe. I had no idea what I was going to, you know, I knew, you know, I wanted to make a film about this particular subject, but I, I had no idea what I was going to do or even the, the story I was, I was going to tell. And same thing with, with Uganda. I shot, actually made the classic mistake, don't, don't do this. I shot for weeks and weeks, like eight weeks, still just sort of searching for the story. But my, you know, the, the, the cinematographer is a friend of mine. He's like, I'll just come along and just shoot stuff with you and we'll figure it out together, um, which was kind of a crazy process because we had just had this like crazy, like a thousand hours of, it was like insane. And then we had to, when we had to get to the editing stage, when eventually, when I sort of figured out towards the end of the shooting process, I, I was like, okay, I'm starting to get it now. 
And, um, but still, I got in the edit room, and I had like 10 million different storylines, and I could have done some. And, and the assembly, we went to the Sundance lab. The assembly we took to the lab was insane. Oh, my God. It was insane. <laughs> and at that lab, the editors, thank God for the lab, because they just, I was in tears. Oh, yeah, that's that, that's that time. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, it's never going to work. I was, it was, yeah, I was a yeah. wreck. They, yeah. Everyone had to take me on walks and take me up the mountain. And, um, yeah. It's a, it's a, yeah. That's a difficult time to get. Yeah, through. it is. Looks like you. It sounds like you were in the right place to be going through that time. I was in the right place. It's like you know, the Sundance Lab is like a therapy. So it's, I always, I always think it's like, like what Est must be like. <laughs> you, you go through this whole thing where, you're, you, where they, they sort of break you down, and then they build you up <laughs> as, a, as a Sundance Lab person. And you're like, ah, oh, Sundance. So yeah, but it, it, it kind of works. It does work. <laughs> And Rachel, for you, was, was it after as well, for the most part? In terms uh, of? In terms of? In terms of ed the footage. Or oh, editing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I spent a year and a half uh, without a camera, <clears throat> meeting people and traveling around uh, Nigeria principally and uh, getting access. It took me a year and a half. Wow. Wow. And then I started shooting. And I, my dream is always to have enough money to hire an editor to consult from day one of the shoot. It's like, I, I talk about it, I put it in the budget, I like, and it's always like the first thing to go because it can go, but it shouldn't go. It's like such a dream and such a great idea. And the notion of having like an editor, collaborator who's on board from day one, who's screening with you, and like, you know, that would be just a dream. <laughs> but it hasn't happened so far. <laughs> Next time. Let's watch a clip from what happened Miss Simone? Yeah, we, we don't have our trailer yet. And but, what, but it's a great clip. Um, so the remarkable Nina Simone, and then we'll get to questions. <laughs> I know you're waiting for your trailer, but I feel like there's there's plenty there that makes me Nina, yeah, you get some Nina. And I love the, I love the uh, the question of the title, and how many layers there are to yeah. that, and how it basically sort of lets you know. To some degree, it's a, it's it's a it, it previews to how complicated the answer might be. Yeah, you know the the um, the what happened to Simone was taken from an article that um, that Maya Angelou wrote in 1970 in Red Book that we I, you know that I found sort of later on into the very late into the process, which was so genius. And uh, at that moment, I was like, oh yeah, that's what you know. Yeah, she Maya knew. <laughs> yeah, she knew what we were trying. We we were all looking at these questions and. Um, but yeah, um, I was grateful, Dr. Angelou, for that. This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. Coming up after the break, more from CNN's panel, Capture Reality. I presume there's some questions. Yes, sir, right here. Miss yeah. um, Garbus, um, I'm right down here in the front. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Hello. Hello. I'm going to break all the rules by referring to one of your films that really moved me that isn't by CNN and it's HBO. Um, something's wrong. <laughs> Is that okay? You can twist I it around. I think so. Where How does CNN feel? No, I think it's fine. <laughs> you can twist it around because it's a general question, of course, too. Yeah. That's the most controversial documentary I've seen on TV in a long time. Uh -huh. um, the one I'm talking about is Something's Wrong with Aunt Diane. Uh -huh. All yeah. right? And in reading, I read the book. Um, 
that came out of that too. Uh, that the mother wrote of the two daughters. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. And I was just wondering because you had to make a stand. I think it, I don't know if it was the hill you would die on. I'm sure some of the other filmmakers would too. And that's my general question. The final shot of her body there too. I don't think. I don't know if it was HBO or the lawyers. There were some people who didn't want it. And if that doesn't apply, then can you tell me of another stand that you had to take where people who were paying your salary or people were saying, I don't want that, and you were saying, I do want that? Sure. Well, um, okay, so to put it in some context of what you're talking about, in case other folks haven't seen this film, I, did a, I made a film with HBO uh, called There's Something Wrong with Aunt Diane, and it was... Uh, essentially a mystery of um, what happened when a woman on a bright Sunday morning went out and drove the wrong way in traffic um, and ended up killing uh, her three nieces, her, uh, her, her baby daughter, and um, people in an oncoming car. And there was this three, three men in an oncoming car, and uh, it came out later that she had you know, an alcohol level of, uh, that she had eight the equivalent of eight shots of vodka and a really high level of marijuana, yet everybody was say, sort of saying, this was the perfect mother, the breadwinner, you know, how does this happen? Um, and um, so for me, that film was about kind of peeling away these ideas of, you know, what is the perfect mother and what does, what are the expectations on that female perfect mother breadwinner and, of course, denial and, and addiction in families. Um, and you're referring to we included a, a, a picture that was in the forensic, that was in the, uh, the autopsy of, the, of Diane Schuler, who had deceased at the scene. Um, and um, actually, HBO had, there were no issues with that. And, you know, we see, we all see, have seen a lot of, you know, war films where we see deceased people, and um, we see videos of people being shot, and, you know, we, you know, I think it's part of um, kind of understanding the gravity of, of what happened. I think, uh, so I didn't really get, I didn't get pushback from HBO about that at all. Um, there might have been, there were probably some family members who were upset by it, for sure. Um, but of course, we've all, but I think your, your question is actually a larger one. Yes. Which is, how do you deal with what you want to do and say if you're hired by somebody? Um, and, you know, I think all of us have worked sometimes independently and sometimes we are um, doing films under contract for, for other television or other distributors. And um, I, you know, unfortunately, I don't have a really juicy answer because I've always had really incredible executives and partnerships um, and people. I just, I fight for what I believe in. And if I get notes I don't agree with, I... I feel like I kind of am able to persuade, <laughs> convince. So I don't, I mean, I feel, and I, um, and I think that the people who support films, like the films we make, um, have a lot of trust in the artist, like that they're not hiring, you know, the people who walk in with scripts to edit rooms, that they're hiring people who go through their own process. <laughs> I don't mean that as an offensive thing. I'm just saying you're not hiring Rachel for that. Like you're, you're hiring people to go through their creative process, you know, and um, so that there's going to be deference to that. So um, in general, other than, you know, uh, people saying, you know, you can't slander people and um, you can't, if somebody hasn't signed a release form, you can't show their face on television. Um, you know, I've had support, really supportive collaborate, collaborations with the HBOs, the Netflixes, and all the, the people I've, I've worked with. Next question. Okay. Hi. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks for sharing your experiences. It's uh, it's great to hear hear that. I have a question. Um, 
I have two questions actually. Am I allowed to do that or? No. Okay. <laughs> I'll just stick with one then. Startup, yeah. So, um, yeah, I've seen Big Man and God Loves Uganda. Both love the films. They're really great. And I know how hard it is for you, you know, just to go out there and get these stories first on camera and then to the big or other screens. Um, I have a question for Rachel then, if I'm only allowed to ask one. Um, so, um, when I first saw the film, uh, I looked at it as a very, as a pretty straightforward story. And now you just told me, like, yeah, I'm like really good at making things really complicated. And you already expanded a little bit on your personal. Uh, so, but I'm, I would like you to ask to tell me a little bit more about that because when I saw the film, I saw like, you know, two storylines: one about big company or, or one person trying to make as much money as he can, and the other storyline is about the public interests. Um, can you explain a little bit more about, you know, the intention of the film or? Yeah, yeah. When you said, I can make it too complicated. Well, I, okay, I'll, I'll interpret the question and you tell me if I get it right. Um, <laughs> I, I, Big Men is a film that we tried very hard. I worked with a great editor, a guy named Seth Bonzi, who's great. Hire him, he's great. Um, but <clears throat> uh, it had to work on a very simple level in order to work, right? Um, Otherwise, it's not going to work. You can't just make a movie that's like, it's got to work very simply. And so, yes, um, on the most simple level, it's a film about discovering first oil in Ghana. And Nigeria represents a question of what will happen in Ghana. Are the, is, it, is, the, is the oil going to benefit the people of Ghana? And that is sort of level number one. And the film had to work at that level. That's not the level that I was most interested in as a filmmaker. Um, it, it just never was the level that I was most interested in as a filmmaker. But it has to, I mean, if, if that doesn't work, then I don't have a movie. Like, there has to be a story, right? And it has to have people in it that you actually want to watch. And it, it has to, like, level number, okay. I had to take my film and cut it down to an hour-long version. And for television? For, yeah. yeah. And not, not for U.S., but for somewhere else. And, and um, in doing that, you can do that. You can just go chop, 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 chop. And it's, very, it's kind of an interesting process when you spent so long editing a movie to cut it down. Because, of course, like you're wedded. Like everything's there for a reason. Like we all know this feeling, right? And then when you're getting rid of things, the stuff that has to stay, the stuff you cannot get rid of, is the stuff that sort of explains the facts. Here are the facts of the story, so that you can actually understand the literal aspects of what's happening. So the literal one, two, three, four, five, that's, that's the spinal cord. And, but to me, it's all the other stuff that makes the film interesting. Like the spinal cord is fine, but I hate that hour-long version. Because it doesn't, it's not, it's not, first of all, it's not the movie, but secondly, it's just not, there's like, there's no soul in it. There's no, and there's no Nigeria in it. I chopped Nigeria out. Um, so can, can you give an example of something you had to throw out for the hour version uh, that oh you God. really liked? Well, I, I took out all of Nigeria. There is no Nigeria in the movie. It's only Ghana. And a lot of people, when I was cutting the film, would watch 
cuts and say, well, why don't you just get rid of Nigeria? Why are you doing that? Why is that in the movie? What does that have to do with anything? I mean, look at this amazing story that you have this amazing access to in Ghana. It's first oil. You got these white dudes. You got the government. You got like you've got all these people in Ghana. Why are we going to Nigeria? And I mean, first of all, I love Nigeria. <laughs> so I'm not going to cut Nigeria out of the movie because I love Nigeria. Don't laugh at me. It's true. I love Nigeria. Uh, I do. Nigeria. I love Nigeria. <laughs> I do. I love Nigeria. Most white people don't. Like I love Nigeria. <laughs> I do. I love it, and I I love it. I I love it, and I I there's no way in heck you're going to get me to cut Nigeria out of the movie. Um, if I could have made a whole movie just about Nigeria, I would have. Um, I didn't have the the goal of the film was always to be inside an oil company. I got access to that story in Ghana. I, God bless Ghana. I love Ghana, but I don't love it as much as I love Nigeria. I love Nigeria, and I, I wish. Um, so there's like a personal reason too, but that's not the real reason. The real reason is that it's the poetry of the film. Yeah. So, okay. so <laughs> on, before we get to the next question, I think what's really behind that though too is that I think for all of these films, there's also the element of ideas motivating a lot of these decisions too. That there's an idea that you're going after as well. It's not just about. And I think the, I think God loves you. This is this like I, I I don't know I don't I don't mean to dominate this, but for me this is like a totally spiritual practice. I mean nobody makes a good living doing this. This is a horrible way to make a living. Like it's horrible. You're never like it's hor I mean it's just horrible. Yeah, it Anybody who survives doing this is independently wealthy. It's just the truth. Like it is. It's, it's, That's not true. Well, anyway. I mean, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. It's really, really hard. And there are people who do manage to survive it's at it. It's absolutely but it's hard. So, I, she's right. I'm exaggerating. I'm totally <laughs> exaggerating. I can, I can think of a bunch of people. I, she's right. I'm, it's, I'm sorry. There are a lot of people who survive doing it. But it's hard. It's really, really hard. And it's hard for people to balance. Most of the people who do this, who survive at doing it, are independently wealthy. Not all of them, but most of them. It's true. Most of them. I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, know. I, I would. I don't agree with that. But anyway, that's okay. Well, let's I, move on. The point is just, it's a very hard way to make a living, and I don't feel like. I don't know. I think you've got to kind of have this. That's like, like, like it's good. Me out. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. I'm like in the middle here. You have to cast a deciding vote. I'm not independently wealthy. So. No, I don't and think any hard. of us are. I mean, like. I struggle. What's well, well, you think you can agree with that? Which is, it's, it's, it's a horrible way to make a living, which I think is a fair way, fair statement. And yeah, that is a fair that's statement. That's a fair statement. Whatever, forget the other statement. And and I think you have to really like, you have to like have this kind of crazy passion for it. It's not logical. But I think you have to, you 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 know, you have to sort of kill your darlings too. It's you know, with with music by Prudence, I HBO let me cut a feature length film. And they, she, they let me. Sheila just let me in that headroom forever till I like strangled myself. And I cut, and I cut this feature film. And I was like, and she's like, and you tell me at the end of the process if you think this is a short or a feature. And it was very painful because there were lots of stuff that I was really married to. And in the end, after crying, I said, cry a lot. I, um, I let it go. I yeah. let go. Of and all that's this the most beautiful thing. I mean, and that's when you're saying like, what you know, what what. You know about, about these collaborations with executives that that we have and yeah. that kind of thing. Like Sheila Evans is you know a giant in this field, and I remember the first film I made with her. I was like, but you know how long should it be? And she's like, it should be as long as it is good. Yeah. You know, and that's like a really good answer to that question. That's the ideal answer to that question, right? Yeah. And and I had an editor who would trick me 
on the farm, a very early, Mary Manhart, who would say, well, I'm going to take that out, but I'm going to put it in the bin of treasure troves that we're going to come back to later. So it was like there was a bin of stuff so that I wasn't like going to be able to part with, but it was in a special bin. <laughs> but of but course, you know, none easy. of those things came back in, but you'd have to, you know, yeah. talk to your, you know, those little treasures. Yeah. Um, you know, and then there used to be this thing called DVD extras, and that doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't? So, well, well, you know, DVDs. there's no DVD. So let's, anyway. let's get to another question. Where is there a microphone around? Okay. Um, hi. Well, thanks for spending your afternoons with us and evenings. Um, I wanted to ask, because I'm an aspiring editor. I do a lot of editing. I haven't done any work on documentaries and stuff like that. But uh, I like to focus on, like, the final image, almost. Uh, you know, where do we, like end this and where like what's the final say for this and mm -hmm. for documentaries it seems very difficult we've been talking about how you want to paint both sides of, of the story so how do you decide at the end of the day where that final that final image or the final um, almost conclusion for like the viewer is like how when it comes to a documentary I guess are you aiming for something are you aiming for a landing spot when constructing the film no, I don't think so. I mean, I think we, I don't know. I, speaking for myself, I mean, there are certainly moments that I come across when I'm screening my footage and I'm just like, oh, that should be either like the opening or that should be the ending or that should be the after the title shot or, you know, like, I mean, there's always those moments. Um, I think I think um, when you're shooting something, um, I, I I've always in everything I've done I've always left some time uh, at, in the edit. So you edit for a while for and you ha you have some money set aside for shooting during the edit because yeah. you're always in the edit and you realize oh shoot we don't have this piece like for example. When we were editing Big Men, it was actually very late in the process that we got the interview with the guy from Warburg Pincus. Uh, he's the chairman of the board. He's an incredibly important voice in the film. And it wasn't until extremely late in the editing process that we realized he was missing, basically, that there was this major voice that we needed to kind of have represented in the film. Um, and I think that that's part of a dialogue. Like, and I yeah. came to that by, through a dialogue with actually a consulting editor, a guy who I hired to watch stuff with me when I was really struggling. And, and he really helped me understand, ah, I'm missing this piece. Yeah, I mean, you're always going to have to go back. You always I mean, you are yeah. always going to have yeah, yeah, to go yeah, back yeah. Um, yeah, during your true. edit. And I always overlap, actually. Um, the yeah. film I'm doing now, I overlap shooting and editing by like three, four months. Yeah, me too. Um, so yeah. you, that's just, yeah. And sometimes it's an obvious ending. You know, sometimes you like shoot a scene and you're like, ah, my ending, yay. And then I remember I had this conversation. There are these two great filmmakers, uh, Rachel Grady and Heidi Ewing, who aren't independently wealthy. And who make a great there you go. <laughs> but anyway, I, I remember having a conversation with them when they were making Jesus Camp, and they were having a really hard time finding the ending for that. And I remember when they found their ending and like, I remember their like, a, the revelation of the ending for them. <laughs> they, and I think sometimes it's a thing that you uh, you struggle with, you struggle with, you don't have it, and then you think of it. And then sometimes it's a thing where you shoot it and you're like, that's it. And so you structure around it. 
but it just depends. Beginning can be harder than ending, too. So. The beginning is everything. I, I mean, think the first 15 minutes is the hardest part yeah. of your edit. I, yeah. Once I get through Absolutely. there, I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's so true. Mm. I think we have time for one more question. Is there a microphone still out there around, or am I just pointing at people? Right here. We're, we're quickly running out of time, so I need to distill a question from this. Is the question, how do you know when you're ready? <laughs> is it when you, how do you know that you're ready to make a film at a certain time? Okay. So how, how do you know when, when, when you're ready to make the film? When do I know what? If you're ready to make the film in question, or is it something that you need to put aside for another time? Or Is that the question? Or it's, is it when are, you, oh, when are you ready to make the film? Distribution, I mean, distribution is when you finish the film, right? I mean, that's distribution. I don't, I mean, I, I, uh, I want to answer, and I, and I really appreciate your perspective. Do you mean when the film is done? How do you know when you're done editing? Oh, yeah, is that what you're That's a good that's question. A, that's a good question. If, if we don't you have an answer. run out of money. Yeah. <laughs> when you stop shooting and editing. Yeah, that's I don't true. know. I mean, yeah, lives, That's if you're true. following people's real lives, yeah, I mean, I've made films with kids. You know, I made a film called Girlhood where I followed these girls. It was like, I could have shot for 10 years. I shot for four. It felt like I had, after four years, four is like an Olympiad. It felt like it was like a neat, it was like, okay, that was right. And um, maybe I felt like I had enough in the can that I could make the stories feel full and satisfying, and I had seen them for long enough. So I guess it's a gut thing, right? Like, when do you feel like you stop shooting and... You know, and with girlhood, like I kept going back. I was like, "Oh, there's a prom," and like, "Oh, someone's mother is out of jail," or you know, the yeah. you know the things you go back for. Um, but uh, it's just a gut thing, I guess. Really, right? Yeah. Well, we have to exit the stage. Rachel has to get. Rachel's on a jury. She has to get to a screening. And thank you all for being here and for asking. This is Tribeca Film Festival Live from WNYC. On the next episode, hear the composer and sound mixer for the Coen Brothers films reveal how sound and scoring create the worlds of movies like The Big Lebowski and Inside Lewin Davis.